Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, with the U.S. Supreme Court appearing ready to overturn or gut the constitutional right to an abortion established by Roe v. Wade, abortion rights groups in California and beyond are mobilizing. Governor Gavin Newsom has called California a reproductive freedom state and sanctuary for those seeking abortions as more states pass bans on the procedure, including the latest Oklahoma. This hour, we learn how grassroots and underground groups are redoubling their efforts to make sure a post-Roe America does not look like pre-Roe America. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California is affirming its status as a refuge for those seeking abortions as a growing number of other states pass more restrictive abortion laws. Oklahoma lawmakers last week voted to ban all abortions, except in cases where the procedure is needed to save a pregnant person's life. The ban is one of several bills designed to halt abortions in Oklahoma, a state that abortion seekers in Texas have been relying on after that state's six-week ban took effect. For more on what's happening in Oklahoma, we're joined first by Catherine Sweeney, a health reporter for State Impact Oklahoma. Catherine Sweeney, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So tell us more about this near total ban on abortions that Oklahoma lawmakers just passed and that sits now on the governor's desk. That legislation would create a felony for anybody who performs an abortion. Um, It would threaten uh, physicians and other abortion providers with up to 10 years in prison um, or $100,000 in fines. Like you pointed out, it does not have an exception for anybody who's a victim of assault or incest. It is only for the life of the mother. Um, It was actually a bill that seemed to have stalled out last year. They kind of brought it back as a surprise um, with only one vote to go. So it rammed through the process very quickly with only one day's notice this Hmm. year. How likely is the governor to sign it? And when would it take effect if the governor did? Um, So the governor has promised to sign all anti-abortion legislation that crosses his desk. Um, Funny enough, the same bill passed in 2016 um, that the governor at the time, Governor Mary Fallon, vetoed it. She was concerned 
that the language about the life of the mother was too vague and would end up being too subjective. But Governor Stitt has voiced no concerns about the legislation. Um, there is no news about how soon he could sign it. Um, after it goes into effect, it could be um, as soon as 90 days. 90 days, yes. And there's some talk about it going into effect as late August. <sighs> As broad as this bill is, especially in the face of the constitutional, right, the constitutional right to an abortion that was established by Roe v. Wade, I mean, it basically completely is a 180 from that. Um, it sounds like there are more bills in Oklahoma that abortion rights activists are very worried about and potentially even more worried about than this one. That is true. There is a similar bill to the one that was passed in Texas um, in 2021, and it has that same mechanism where it would not be enforced by the government, but by civil lawsuits. Um, people would sue their neighbors or whoever um, because of getting an abortion. The reason that that is concerning for a lot of abortion rights supporters is that that seems a little more difficult to have ruled unconstitutional because the government is not enforcing it. Uh, how many abortion clinics or how many providers are there in Oklahoma that provide abortions? Um, very few, just a handful. Just a handful, but certainly regardless, it sounds like Oklahoma has been one of the places where people in Texas have been relying on for abortions after Texas passed its six-week ban that this other bill, Oklahoma, is modeling after. What, what impact will this have on them? Because I imagine Oklahoma's already seen a big impact from Texas's, Texas's ban. Oklahoma is definitely seeing a big impact. According to state data, before Texas ban went into place, um, only a few dozen Texans would come to Oklahoma um, every month to get an abortion. Um, that would be because if you are you know, living in North Texas, Oklahoma City is going to be closer than Dallas in some cases, You know, just normal um, geography issues. But um, after the ban went into place, that number surged into the hundreds. Um, there's about 200 Texans getting abortions in Oklahoma every month. Um, so kind of one thing that is a concern is that if Oklahoma drops off this map, the, the post-row map, um, that would move the border essentially even further north. Um, and so, you know, Oklahomans and Texans could be going to Kansas. Um, but a concern there is that Kansas is voting on a ballot initiative in August that would also ban abortion. So um, the region is in a really precarious place right now when it comes to abortion access. Before I let you go, Catherine Spinney, what do you think people in California need to understand about these bills? As residents of a state where many people feel this could never happen here. Well, I think that one thing um, to keep in mind is that Oklahoma is not a monolith. No, no group of people is. Um, there are a lot of people here fighting for the right to get an abortion. Um, and it, it's not um, it's not 100% across the board supported this, this fight to end it. Um, surveys here show that not even necessarily a majority of people support abortion restrictions that are this stringent. So um, I, I think that it, it is good to keep in mind that um, it doesn't take everyone being on board to get restrictions that are this tough. 
And so what kinds of reactions have you seen, especially from people who uh, support abortion rights to this kind of move by Oklahoma that, that might be new and even unprecedented for the state? Right. So one thing to keep in mind with these bans is that Oklahoma lawmakers try bans like this all the time. It is not abnormal for you know a dozen bills to go through the legislature. The thing that's different now is that there's significantly less faith that it will just get thrown out by the Supreme Court immediately, either the state Supreme Court or the federal Supreme Court. That's always just kind of been a given, but it isn't anymore, especially as the Supreme Court considers Mississippi's ban. Um, th there are concerns that, that Roe v. Wade will, as we heard in the introduction, either be gutted or completely overturned. So part of the concern is that. Um, another concern is that this could have such a negative effect um, culturally on bringing um, businesses to the area. You know, it, 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 these, these bans are very controversial. Um, and so th there's all kinds of potential fallout in addition to losing a, a right to abortions. Well, Catherine Sweeney, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Catherine Sweeney is a health reporter for State Impact Oklahoma talking about the recent ban that lawmakers passed there, and that's awaiting the governor's signature. I'd like to bring into the conversation Jessica Bruder, a journalist who recently wrote a cover story for The Atlantic titled, A Covert Network of Activists is Preparing for the End of Roe. Jessica Bruder, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And your piece for The Atlantic really looks at some of the people that Catherine Sweeney was talking about in terms of people who are working at the grassroots level, under the radar, and, and that they've been working for a really long time to try to basically mitigate the, the damage or the restrictions that these abortion laws have had. Um, and when I say a really long time, it's because I'm thinking of a line in your piece where you say, for many Americans, Roe already feels meaningless. Can you give us a sense of why it already feels meaningless? Yeah, well, a big part of that is the fact that nearly 90% of counties in the U.S. already lack a clinic that offers abortions. Since Roe passed, I mean, I'm sorry, since Roe was decided in 1973, the states have passed more than 1,300 restrictions. So in many places, activists argue it's hard enough to get an abortion that Roe might as well not exist. But you also point out a survey in 2021 showing how few people would support overturning or nullifying Roe. Absolutely. Um, the majority of Americans, according to the Gallup poll that you're talking about, uh, do not support overturning Roe. So this is not, I mean, we do have a six to three conservative majority court, as we know, uh, and then the court obviously isn't taking polls on popular opinion. Um, but yeah, this is not a popular choice. And in the meantime, we've got a lot of states who have trigger laws on the books, uh, more than half of states that are believed to basically attempt to ban an abortion should the Supreme Court overrule, overturn, or um, gut Roe. Can you just give us a little bit of a sense of that as well? Yeah, there are 13 states now with trigger bans, which means if Roe falls, those bans will take place instantly. And 26 states that are considered likely to ban abortion, or at least try, if Roe gives them the space to do that. So the Guttmacher Institute, which does research in this area, has this incredible map where you just look at chunks of the country 
that will become, that are already many of them abortion deserts that will become even more arid. Um, and just thinking about what that will do to the states where abortion remains legal is mind melting as well. Because when you look at Texas, there was this incredible diaspora that impacted all the neighboring states, created bottlenecks. Um, and that was, you know, Texas has one tenth of the women of reproductive age in America. So, I mean, multiply that and the future is looking pretty crazy. Yes. And this is something that grassroots activists and under the radar, basically abortions right, abortion rights organizations are trying to deal with. I make this distinction because you make this distinction. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between, say, the work of grassroots groups and the work of more underground groups? My pleasure. So we already have gosh, at least 90 abortion funds around the country that help women connect with the means they need to actually get an abortion. Uh, ever since the Hyde Amendment passed back in 1976, federal Medicaid funding has been unavailable for abortion. That puts it out of reach for many low-income women. So there's always been a lot of fundraising in this space, and it, it's never been enough to meet the demand for it, but it's there, and it's been around for a long time. We have practical support groups. There are people who will help connect people with logistics, whether it's childcare, just ways to get where they need to go to get an abortion. There are clinic escorts who will get people past protesters. There are doctors who travel hundreds of miles and often end up performing abortions in states that are openly hostile to abortion and flying home. Then if you tip into the underground a bit, these are people who work in a quieter way by word of mouth. Many of them refer to themselves as community providers. Uh, this network includes midwives, herbalists, doulas, educators, activists. And these are people who are willing to do everything from, you know, one woman talked to me about sending abortion pills to somebody who was 13 years old and pregnant in Texas. And um, everything from that to actually doing things that are procedural. We're talking with Jessica Bruder, a journalist who wrote a piece about this network of activists preparing for the end of Roe. We'll have more with Jessica and we'll meet the head of an organization trying to provide reproductive access right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Supporters of access to abortions are preparing for the U.S. Supreme Court possibly overturning or severely weakening Roe v. Wade, which established a constitutional right to an abortion. We're talking with Jessica Bruder, author of the recent Atlantic piece, A Covert Network of Activists is Preparing for the End of Roe. 
also a journalist and author of Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. You, our listeners, are also with us, and I want to invite you to join the conversation. Are you as well preparing for a post-Roe future? Why? What motivates you? And perhaps you remember a pre-Roe America and would like to share your thoughts on that. Or if you have any questions about recent abortion bans, 866-733-6786 is the number, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. I'd like to bring into the conversation now Jessica Pinckney, Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice, an organization that helps people access abortions by providing information and financial and logistical assistance. Jessica Pinckney, really glad to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. We were just talking before the break with Jessica Bruder about all of these efforts to try to bring access to abortions, especially in the wake of more and more restrictive laws that we're seeing across the country. First, can you remind us just who is most impacted by these kinds of laws? Absolutely. The folks who are most impacted by these types of laws are black and brown individuals, um, folks who are living at at the margins historically. So for access reproductive justice, caller base is primarily low income folks, people in their 20s, folks who are on California's Medicaid system, Medi-Cal, uh, and often are living in, in rural areas, uh, rural parts of, of the state. And that tends to be similar across the country. You also, it sounds like, work with people who English may not be a first language, people who are immigrants. Yes, absolutely. And so talk a little bit about how your work has changed, especially in the last year. Or so probably doubled. <laughs> yeah. So interestingly, I would say our work really changed starting with the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, we certainly saw folks who uh, lost jobs or were furloughed due to the pandemic uh, who found themselves unable to carry a pregnancy to term. Uh, and so that was when we first started to really see an increase in um, our caller base. And of course, since laws such as Texas SB8 um, and Oklahoma, et cetera, have gone into uh, are being considered or have gone into effect, we've seen um, an even further increase in folks seeking seeking care and seeking out abortion funds. Um, we've certainly seen an increase in Texas callers, as well as folks from other states, because as we know, and as has already been discussed here today, uh, there, there's really an overflow effect created when these bans go into place. Uh, if you can't get your abortion in Texas, you might go to Oklahoma. There are only so many clinics in Oklahoma. So then there's overflow that falls into New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, California, etc. cetera. Uh, so we're definitely already seeing the impact of, of legislation uh, like Texas SB8 and like what we're seeing being considered in Oklahoma right now and um, only anticipating that that will get worse with a Supreme Court decision in June. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the challenges of trying to link someone needing an abortion to a procedure? Sure. So access reproductive justice has been helping people 
obtain their abortions and other reproductive health care services for over 30 years. And so I will say we we have practices and procedures in place and they they tend to be effective. Um, even in a progressive state like California, though, uh, there are a lot of barriers that folks face in accessing the care they need. They um, maybe in a rural area and have to travel multiple hours to the nearest clinic. That's where we jump in to help with uh, a ride to the clinic or an Uber or a Lyft to get them there safely. Uh, folks may have to stay overnight in a city far from home for if they're having a multiple day procedure. Uh, and that's where Access will step in to help with a hotel room. Uh, in pre-pandemic times, we also would pair folks with volunteers who would house them in their homes. Um, we know that the about more than 50% of people who are having an abortion are already parents. So sometimes there are childcare needs that come up for folks. Um, and so we, we have helped pair folks with, with childcare needs or with the finances to pay for their own childcare, et cetera. So those are some of the practical support needs that, that folks have and that we, we try to help with. Um, but there are also the procedural support needs, um, whether folks are uninsured or underinsured. Um, if you're paying for an abortion out of pocket, it can sometimes be more than, than what you have in your bank account. And so we can, we will help with uh, paying for the abortion procedure itself, paying for abortion pills themselves. Um, so there are a number of, of needs, even in a progressive state like California, that uh, we are able to meet at Access. And um, you know, we're really proud to be doing a lot of work right now, as was mentioned, I believe, at the top of the hour to to ensure that California truly is a reproductive freedom state for Californians and for those who may come here for support. And Jessica Bruder, there are a lot of grassroots groups that are trying to do this kind of work and seeing uh the amount of work grow significantly. But you also really spent some time looking deeply into sort of the more under the radar groups. Um, I think you called it the quote, improvised safety net um, that doesn't catch anyone. Could you talk a little bit about these groups? First, how you even came to realize just how vast <laughs> this network is? Yeah, I mean, I stepped into it backwards because I don't, uh, I don't usually cover uh, reproductive health. It's not, it's not my area. And I was actually watching somebody at a hackers convention talking about hackers in post Roe versus Wade, whatever that landscape would look like. And going back to the '70s and sharing a device called a Delem, which was basically a make-it-yourself procedural abortion kit and something that people were using to help each other end pregnancies safely early on. Now, in many ways, this is symbolic. We know that as of 2020, more than half of legal abortions were accomplished by means of abortion pills. So most people are looking to that as a fallback if Roe goes down because the abortion pills are safe, they're discreet, and again, they can be sent by mail. And while it's already illegal in 19 states to prescribe those pills by telemedicine or send them by mail, and nine additional states are trying to do the same, um, I think it's gonna be hard to put that back in the bottle. 
You said abortion kit. What do you mean by an abortion kit? Sure. If, if you go back to the years immediately before Roe, uh, there's an amazing history, and it comes out of California, where Carol Downer, who is now 88, and other feminist activists were actually shadowing somebody in an illegal abortion, abortion clinic who had created um, a medical bit of technology that is actually now the standard for certain types of early stage abortions. It's called the Carmen cannula. And it was a flexible straw for procedural abortions that basically is used to create a vacuum and, and early stage pregnancies. And these women basically adapted it and created a device that they called the Delem that they were able to use themselves. They referred to it as menstrual extraction and they traveled the country on a Greyhound bus referring to themselves as the West Coast Sisters. This is going on at the same time that some better known efforts were also out there. A lot of people have heard of the Jane Collective who provided many thousands of abortions out of the Chicago area. They started out doing referrals and then actually learned the procedures themselves. There was something called the Clergy Consultation Service that had well over a thousand, gosh, I believe it was mostly Protestant ministers, but there was a smattering of rabbis and others uh, connecting people with abortion access. So I feel like in a way, those people, some of them are still with us. And there's also knowledge that's been handed down intergenerationally and people uh, have never lost that knowledge, but I think others are feeling that they'll need to lean on it more and more. Wow, so they never lost that knowledge, probably concerned just in case abortion rights are curtailed. So these kits, I guess, for lack of a better description, are still in existence. Well, people, and, people can still make them. Yeah. Um, although the pill, you know, they didn't have abortion pills right, prior right. to Roe versus Wade. So when people talk about going back, there really is no going back. The science has changed. So let's talk about the pills. Can you describe... Describe what they are first, and also what the focus is in terms of trying to make people more aware of and make those pills more accessible. Absolutely. Um, given that in 2020, again, more than half of legal abortions were done by pills, it's amazing how many people still don't know about them. And when we talk about abortion pills, we're actually talking about two different pharmaceuticals. We're talking about mifepristone and misoprostol that are used in sequence and end of pregnancy. They're very safe, they're very effective. Studies have shown us that they're medically safer than Viagra, than acetaminophen. And interestingly enough, even when these are administered with a doctor's prescription, the patient is essentially self-managing an abortion because the abortion actually happens at home. And many states help allow this via telemedicine Meanwhile, there's a group called Aid Access started by a physician named Dr. Rebecca Gompertz in Europe. And they currently provide pills to people in all 50 states, uh, regardless of what the state regulations are. Uh, there, there's a whole infrastructure to help people who may need to self-manage abortions, depending on what happens in June. Uh, there's a, a group called If, When, How that offers legal support basically legal advice for people in these situations. Um, like we just saw that situation out of Texas where somebody was arrested following something that still remains ambiguous around a self-managed abortion. Mm -hmm. There's a miscarriage and abortion hotline that people can call for questions. So there's already this infrastructure out there. 
And I think for the people who want to help women who might be able to use these pharmaceuticals, it's a knowledge battle right now in terms of just getting more information out there. A knowledge battle, meaning there are too many people who are unaware of the existence of these pills or the infrastructure to try to support them getting them? Absolutely. I sat in on a a fascinating session with a woman named Susan Yano, who was training for a group called Self-Managed Abortion Safe and Supported. And this is basically a train-the-trainer class where we were all basically just taught how people use abortion pills and how people support other people uh, in the use of abortion pills. And the idea is that, you know, it's kind of an each one teach one talking about going back to the 60s or 70s, but uh, the idea that people can help each other spread the knowledge of this, even if it's knowledge that they themselves will not need. Do you find, Jessica Pinckney, that knowledge of being able to do an abortion using pills is something that still is a gap that still needs to be filled? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, even on our health line where folks are traditional, are usually accessing traditional healthcare services through the medical system, uh, folks are surprised to learn that there is, uh, there are abortion pills that they can take um, in lieu of, of a procedure Um, And so, yeah, there's absolutely an information gap that exists here. And I think in terms of self-managed abortion writ large, there's really an information gap that exists because we know that people, particularly black and brown communities, have been self-managing their abortions for decades and centuries. Um, So there there is a history of this in our lineage um, and, you know, a lot of information that that can be shared and is shared in groups like Jessica Bruder is discussing. Do you feel like the cost of these medications make them less accessible as well, or are they relatively affordable? Um, it's hard to say. I think everyone's financial circumstances really differ. And so what might seem relatively affordable to me or you may not seem relatively affordable to someone calling our health line. Um, I think there is a comfort for a lot of the folks on our health line in terms of being able to, to essentially have their abortion at home um, and not have to be in a clinical setting. We know, again, for a lot of historically marginalized communities, there's a distrust of our medical system um, and a weariness of our our medical system. And so um, I think for a lot of folks, there's comfort to be found in being able to self-manage their abortion and that, you know, for a reproductive justice framework, um, that's only ensuring someone's bodily autonomy even more. And I'm now just remembering, Jessica Bruder, that it could really range for the medications anywhere from like $100 to, in some cases, $600. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know why anybody would pay quite that much, but there is a range out there when you go online. And um, there's a website that people should know about called Plan C. And because things vary so much by state right now, when people input their states, it shows what the options are to get the pill and the different prices as well. But another thing I've seen happening 
with the underground is people trying to pass around misoprostol, which is also used independently to um, induce abortions because it is much easier to get and much less expensive than mifepristone. It's also used to induce, I mean, it's used for stomach ulcers. So it has all these other uses. It has veterinary uses. Um, so people are also relying on that as a fallback. And as you allude to, though, lawmakers in several states are trying to restrict access to these pills, in some cases making it a felony to provide them through the mail. Absolutely. And, and this is interesting because this also came out of the pandemic. I, I know Jessica was talking about how, how many things changed. And in, in terms of what I was researching, this was just a fundamental, important thing in that be, because it was so dangerous to go out and we knew so little about COVID and just in the early surges, there was a rule initially that mifepristone had to be dispensed in a clinic. And that regulation was temporarily suspended, which led to the proliferation of telemedicine startups and nonprofits. Uh, then that rule was temporarily reinstated. It has now just been canceled, essentially. It doesn't exist. So we have something new in the landscape, which is that there are many places where the pills can be prescribed by telemedicine and then sent by mail. I tried to do it, well, I, I did do it successfully myself as part of the piece, it was very simple. And because I was in California, a blue state, the pills ended up coming from, gosh, uh, a pharmacy about seven miles from where I was staying. Uh, I live in Brooklyn, but was living out there and uh, they were very easy to get. We're talking with Jessica Bruder, a journalist who's covering the abortion networks that are mobilizing in the face of possibly losing the protections of Roe v. Wade this June with the U.S. Supreme Court looking at state bans. We're also talking with Jessica Pinckney, Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice. You, our listeners, can join the conversation with your questions or comments. 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We'll get right to your calls and comments right after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Abortion access providers, activists, advocates are bolstering their networks in anticipation of the conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court severely weakening Roe. 
We're talking with Jessica Bruder, author of a recent Atlantic piece titled A Covert Network of Activists is Preparing for the End of Roe, and Jessica Pinckney, Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice, and you, our listeners, are sharing if you're preparing for a post-Roe future, or what are your thoughts on the preparations underway, even if you remember a pre-Roe America, if you'd like to share those memories, feel free, 866-733-6786. And uh, Karen writes, I have a 23-year-old daughter because we are financially comfortable. I know that if she ever needed an abortion, like with any other health care need, we will be able to afford to provide it to her, regardless of what the courts do. I think that if everyone, not just the poor, faced real-life consequences from the overturning of Roe, there would be rioting in the streets. But as usual, the wealthy are exempt and the powerless are too busy surviving for political action. Jessica Pinkney, what's your reaction to Karen's comment? No, I really, I 100% agree with you, Karen. I think that uh, you've hit the nail on the head. Those who are privileged are always going to be able to access the care they need, whether it's through a traditional medical system or otherwise. Um, And I think, you know, we've already seen that be the case in with the Texas bill going into effect. Uh, If you have the means to get on a plane, if you have the means to take multiple days off of work, if you have the means to find family care or child care for those you're leaving at home, you can, you can get the abortion you need. You can get on a plane and you can travel as far as you may have to, to access that care. But it's people who live paycheck to paycheck, who don't have consistent child care, who can't afford to take multiple days off work and get on a plane, who are going to be forced into pregnancies that they cannot have or do not desire. And we know from the turnaway study done uh, at UCSF that when folks are forced into pregnancies that they do not desire, they're more likely to have negative uh, socioeconomic outcomes in the future. So I couldn't agree more with Karen. And let me go to Kristen in Palo Alto. Hi, Kristen. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. It's just a comment. I have had two abortions in my life. I'm very grateful to live in California where my you know, reproductive justice rights are protected, but it makes me very sad that other women in similar positions, you know, even though it's medically indicated, even though there is no viable life, um, that you know, it, it could endanger my life, that women in other states don't have access to that. So I hope the fight continues to bring that accessibility um, to all women in all states. Kristen, thank you. Jessica Pinckney, Kristen brings up California, and we've been talking a little bit with Jessica Bruder about some of the more under the radar efforts, but there are certainly above the radar for on the radar or above ground efforts, I guess, for lack of a better way of describing it, that California is doing. Could you talk a little bit about some of those efforts? For example, um, California has established basically since the Texas law took effect, um, you know, efforts, organizations to try to increase um, abortion access, like the California Future of Abortion Council. So could you talk a little bit about those efforts? Yes, absolutely. So in direct response to SB8 going to going into effect in Texas and in anticipation of the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson, um, the governor 
came to uh, advocates across the state of California and asked us to form the Future of Abortion Council, which is comprised of reproductive freedom and sexual and reproductive health care allies, partners, leaders, policymakers, researchers, providers, patients, anyone who has any kind of stake in in abortion issues across the state. And we spent the fall putting together 45 policy recommendations that policymakers can implement to better prepare California as the threat to abortion rights and access continues to grow. And these recommendations really range from uh, um, workforce issues, um, to uh, abortion funds and practical support, to ensuring that cost isn't a barrier to care, um, really making sure that any administrative and institutional barriers to abortion care are eliminated. And of course, strengthening legal protections for patients, providers, and those who support patients and providers. Uh, So it's a really robust set of recommendations, like I said, 45. Um, And this legislative session, which started in January, uh, California's policymakers jumped right into action, writing legislation based off these recommendations. And we're proud to say that we have uh, 14 bills that have been introduced based on the recommendations of the California Future of Abortion Council, addressing all of those issues I previously named Um, And we're hopeful that many of them will make it through the legislative process and be signed uh, into law by the governor later this year. Well, Noel tweets, we can't rely on legislatures and courts. Women need to control their own reproduction. Where do I sign up for the underground? Jessica Bruder, I don't know if any thoughts for Noel on that. (laughs) Um, I, I'm not the person taking names, um, <laughs> <laughs> is what I should say. Um, but no, if, if uh, gosh, what should I say to that? Um, I, I think that was a, a comic comment really rather than a practical one. It was, but, uh, but I guess the point being that there really are, there really are organized efforts that people can be part of in the underground. Can I jump in? Please do, just That's okay. Yeah, I mean, I think in addition to the the quote unquote underground that Jessica has discussed in terms of of self managing abortion, as Jessica mentioned earlier in the hour, there are also almost 90 abortion funds and practical support organizations that exist across the country that have been helping people get the abortions they need, whether it be in state or out of state uh, for decades. Access reproductive justice has existed for 30 years. So I strongly encourage people to look up the National Network of Abortion Funds at abortionfunds.org. You are able to um, search for the nearest abortion fund uh, closest to you uh, through that site. And many abortion funds, particularly those who provide practical support, are always looking for volunteers. Access Reproductive Justice is currently looking for volunteers. We need people to drive people to and from appointments, to pick up prescriptions, etc. cetera. Um, and we hope to soon be able to reintroduce lodging and childcare as well. Um, so if you're interested in volunteering, 
abortion funds across the country are always looking for volunteers. Well, Catherine writes, could your guests please address the absence of discussion and policies as to how people who may be forced to give birth will be provided medical care and how these children will be cared for after they're born or the trauma the mothers will face? The consequences of overturning Roe will not simply be solved because babies can be given up at safe surrender sites. Jessica Pinckney, if you, I'll go to you first on that. Sure. So there, there is data and research around this, as I uh, was sharing a little bit earlier, and that's the the turnaway study that was done um, at UCSF. And the research shows that denying a person an abortion creates economic hardship and insecurity, which can last for years. We know when folks are turned away. Um, and go on to give birth, they're likely to experience an increase in household poverty that can last four to five years relative to those who receive an abortion. And years after an abortion denial, folks are more likely to not have enough money to cover basic living expenses like food, housing, and transportation. So when organizations like Access Reproductive Justice say that abortion is a reproductive justice issue. It's because we cannot look at abortion in a silo. Abortion impacts your economic health. It it impacts immigrant issues. It impacts um, housing issues and so much more. And so we can't just look at this issue in a silo. We have to also look at how we're improving housing, um, what kind of laws we have on the books around, you know, immigrants' access to care, um, what we're doing to ensure that folks can have uh, truly full lives um, as it relates to economic justice, et cetera. Um, so it's a, a really important question that's being raised here and something that I don't think folks give enough attention to. Did you want to add anything to that, um, Jessica Bruder, in terms of just the impacts or really, I think you even touched on just some of the dangers medically of, of people being forced to carry a pregnancy to term? Well, we actually know that childbirth is riskier than abortion when, when we talk about medical safety. And we do have reports already of people in Texas who got stuck, who would have wanted to have abortions and couldn't. We also heard after the Texas diaspora of people who had to have abortions much further along than they would have if all these bottlenecks hadn't been created, who went from being perhaps in the first trimester and needing relatively simple procedures or the medication to being into the second trimester, which is not only more complicated and riskier, but more expensive. So there are all sorts of practical challenges here. And I I have to commend Jessica Pinckney's very important widening of the dialogue in in that this isn't one issue we can just look at alone. it's, It's part of a much bigger and more complicated mosaic. Well, Celia writes, I understand that abortion was fairly commonplace in early American history. Can you provide some info on history of abortion in the U.S. and possibly elsewhere? Jessica Bruder? Sure. So it's true that when the U.S. was new, there was a heavy reliance on British common law. And British common law didn't recognize the existence of a fetus until what they refer to as the quickening. So maybe that first fetal kick just some sort of movement. And prior to that, women were 
allowed legally um, and often pursued uh, relief from what they referred to as an obstructed menses. There were all sorts of home health manuals with recipes. Um, there were some dubious <laughs> patent medicines that were used, but it, it was just not considered particularly scandalous. And at the same time, we know that throughout history, people who have been told that they can't end a pregnancy have always found creative ways to do so. If you look at enslaved women in the US, they actually subverted the cash crop of the empire um, that was oppressing them. They, they took cotton root bark tinctures. Um, and so it's incredible. There have always been ways that people have found to um, get through cracks in the system. Uh, even, you know, abortion was criminalized in just about every state by the end of the 1800s. And uh, that's when things got more complicated for sure. We're talking about the recent bans on abortion happening nationally, the upcoming Supreme Court decision on a case with the Mississippi ban on abortions that could gut or overturn Roe. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Karen in Ventura. Hi, Karen. Hi, good morning. Um, what would you think of somebody who took a baby and put it out on the curb and walked away? That That's... That's child abandonment, child endangerment, and that's what men do all the time. These women have to have these kids, and the men just scamper off with no responsibility. Now, all these male legislatures are real quick to write laws punishing women and not a single consequence for the man. How do you, what do you think, my, even in a blue state like California, I think I could get something to stricter uh, punishments for men, even in California. Karen, thanks for registering your thoughts on this. Really curious to get your reaction, Jessica Pinckney, in terms of the gender issues at play here that I think Karen is alluding to. Sure. I mean, I will note that um, you may have observed I'm very cautious in my language. I do not actually talk about pregnant women because we know uh, based on the data that on our health line that there are folks who don't identify as women who do have abortions. Um, and so this is an issue that impacts all genders. And I think it's really important to um, acknowledge that. And I think the point that Karen, that's the point that Karen is making is that this is an issue that impacts all of us. Um, and just because it tends to be women identifying folks who carry uh, pregnancies, um, it does not mean that there is not responsibility that exists for, for all. And I think this goes back to my earlier point that uh, abortion is a reproductive justice issue. And we have to look at this uh, in, as Jessica Bruder beautifully put it, in a mosaic of other issues. Um, there are intimate partner violence issues that exist when talking about abortion. There are healthy relationship issues that exist when talking about abortion. There are socioeconomic issues that exist when talking about abortion. And um, it's incredibly unfair for any legislature to be legislating on people's bodily autonomy, period, end stop. Um, and so, you know, I think abortion and reproductive health rights and justice have been wrongly named as gendered issues when really these are, again, holistic issues that affect all people. 
Well, a couple other thoughts from our listeners. Malcolm writes, I think all the conservatives on the court are Catholics and against the right to abortion. Isn't that an obvious imposition of a specific religious doctrine against all U.S. citizens, regardless of religious differences? Amy writes, why is it that we hear that the majority of Americans support the right to abortion, but these radical states are managing to make abortion illegal? Is it just the power of state legislatures? How, if the majority of Americans support abortion rights, is it that we're still fighting this battle? Jessica Bruder, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, we know that how people's votes are counted and weighted uh, isn't always reflected in legislative outcomes, unfortunately. I mean, if we if we look at the court right now and we have a six to three conservative court, well, look who gets to do all of the appointing. Um, look at the fact that it, it, it's somewhat unpredictable in terms of when that might happen. Um, I wish that I believed that the will of the people was directly reflected by what happens, but maybe I'm just a longtime cynic um, because I, I'm not surprised by that, unfortunately. Well, Jonathan writes, I do not understand how the ending of a life can be thought of as a better alternative than ending economic hardship and increasing security. Marilee writes, this is so outrageous. One of my roommates in the 60s had to go to Mexico to get an abortion, and you are right, she had the means to do it. This is so directed toward the poor and people of color. It makes me sick. I don't like abortion, but I think it should be legal, safe, and rare. The point of, or one of the, the main statements you make in your piece, Jessica Bruder, for The Atlantic, is that essentially a post-Roe world will not resemble a pre-Roe world. So where are you just in terms of what the future of abortion in America will look like? Yeah, I think it will involve, again, for for those who can afford it, more moving around. And for those who can't, again, we already know that people have been stuck in Texas. We know that people are creating vans to bring pills to the edges of states where abortion is illegal. So, again, I think it's going to be a greater version of what we have already with all of these funds and support networks and mutual aid. Yep. Well, Jessica Bruder and Jessica Pinckney, thank you. And thank you, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.